we praise you for the wondrous cross. We thank you, Father, for the reminder of how glorious the cross is, where our Savior died so that we can live. Father, I confess that too often we, as your people, lose the joy of pondering the implications of the cross, and we need it restored. And so I pray, Father, that you would revive our hearts. And I pray you would do it the way you always do, through law and grace. The gospel is law and grace. The law exposes our sin and convicts us and condemns us. Your grace steps in because of the glorious cross of Christ, the terrible, glorious cross of Christ. It stands between us and God and liberates us from our just penalty. Lord Jesus, you bore that penalty, and, oh, Father, you poured it out on him. And what can we do but sit in awe and wonder and praise your name. And so we ask, Father, that you would stir up within us now in this hour a new love, a fresh love for the cross as we see our sin and cause us to love the Lord Jesus Christ more than we did before we came. May your name be exalted and may our souls be filled with the joy of pleasing you. This we pray in the name of our Savior, Jesus. Amen. We're still in 1 Corinthians 10, and so I would invite you to join with me in 1 Corinthians 10. And we continue in the context we've been in, chapters 8, 9, and 10, talking about Christian liberty and Paul taking us to various and sundry places to uh, pound out his thinking on this and what we need to know practically about it. The reason I chose 1 Corinthians in the first place is because it's such a practical book and it doesn't get much more practical than and what we will discover here this morning in this wonderful verse, uh, verse 13. But this is practical for us because every Christian experiences suffering. Every Christian faces various trials. You will face various trials today. You may face some small trial before you leave this building. I hope, by God's grace, you will experience some small trial before you stand up where you are I hope there will be some crisis of the heart that you experience and have to respond to in a godly manner. But all of us experience some suffering, sometimes severe, like the death of a loved one, others minor, like going out with the staff to lunch and the inability to find a parking place or someone jumps into one before you do. Most are somewhere in the middle between the extreme bad and the extreme mundane. None of us are exempt from difficult circumstances. The early church faced trials. The apostles faced trials. Jesus himself faced many, many trials. In fact, Job even said, man is born for trouble as surely as sparks fly upward. Now that's practical. None of us are exempt from difficulties, trials, suffering, temptation. 
It's just a part of living in a sinful world. And yet as followers of Christ, God has called us to respond to trials differently than our non-Christian neighbors and friends. We're supposed to respond to every trial in a way that proclaims the excellencies of Christ because that's the way we live. That's why we exist as believers. We are called to respond to every seducing circumstance in a way that shows the world what God is like. Reality, however, is this is no easy calling, and we often fail. We often get into temptation to sin when we face trials, difficulties. We all struggle with this. None of us are exempt. In fact, a large part of pastoral ministry is wrapped up around the need to help people work through their response to difficulty. Because oftentimes when difficulty comes and we respond badly, we sin, and then those closest to us respond by sinning in response to our sin, and then it just tumbles and mushrooms and snowballs, however you want to describe it. Many who come for counseling during the week find themselves out in the middle of a minefield and they don't know which way to turn because every direction is dangerous. And a lot of pastoral ministry has to, has to do with helping people navigate through that to get back out where they belong, to get back on the path that God has set for them where they belong and where it's safe and where it's joyful because it isn't any fun to stand in the middle of a minefield. It's just the way it is. And all of us from time to time find ourselves there. None are exempt. This morning I want us to think about how to respond to trials. And specifically, how do we respond to the temptations that often come along with trials? All of us need help with this. Because all of us tend to, to fail to respond well because we simply don't understand what God's word and God's provision is for the believer when he faces various trials. We just don't know how to evaluate what's happening in our hearts and what's happening in our circumstances. And so... Because we don't know how to evaluate it, we don't know how to respond to it. Now, I realize that there's much more that can be said about the doctrine of sin, the doctrine of temptation. Um, all of these things, you know, there's, there's tons of scriptures that address these issues, but this morning I'm just going to expound this one and make reference to James chapter 1 that we've read earlier. And in the process, I want to offer, Lord willing, by God's grace, six truths to remember six truths, you understand how much grace that's going to take, six truths to remember when you face various trials and temptations, six things to remember. Now, before we do that, let's look at this text, the scripture that's before us. Let's stand together in honor of God's holy word. Follow along with me now as I read verse 13 and verse 14 of chapter 10. Many of you won't even need your Bibles because you have this text memorized and have had it memorized for years. I hope that you will be well fed this morning from this text. Paul simply says this, no temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide a way of escape also, so that you will be able to endure it Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. 
The Lord has spoken. You can be seated. Now let's unpack together what the Lord has said and how it applies to us because the implications and applications are tremendous and weighty and very practical. I told you I'd give you six things, and here's number one. Number one, number one truth to remember when you're faced with your next trial, which will probably happen today. Number one, every trial, every trial is a test of the heart. Every trial is a test of the heart. Now, if I don't make it through the six today and only make it through this first one, it will, be, it will have been time well spent because we need to learn this. Every trial is really a test of the heart. Now, the word for temptation here, let's refresh on the text again, verse 13. No temptation has overtaken you. The word for temptation here, perasmos in the Greek, it means to examine or to test. It is not something that speaks necessarily to sin or sinful intentions or sinful desires. That's stage two. That's step number two. The first thing that happens is the circumstance. Some circumstance happens. Somebody cuts you off on the highway. Your wife or your husband says something snide to you or in a jesting manner that you take offense. Um, Your children disobey. Um, Somebody at the office, you know, stabs you in the back. Um, You fill in the blank. What is the circumstance that happens? This is what he's talking about here. This is not a temptation necessarily. This is a trial. It is a test. In fact, this word, uh, perasmos, is a word that uh, became a common term used for discovering whether a person is good or evil. It is a test that is designed to bring out from your heart whatever is there so as to test it to see if it was good or whether it is evil. And so I want you to think of it like this. Here's my water bottle. Charlie has one down here too. Mine has a little carabiner on it to remind me this is mine so I don't drink out of Charlie's. And this is a water bottle. And, uh, and you don't know what's inside it and what's inside it is irrelevant. But let me show you what happens when, when a trial comes. Now, pretend I take the lid off, which I'm not going to do. When a trial comes, this is what God is doing to your heart. And the lid is off. Now, if I shake a water bottle or a oil bottle or a shampoo bottle with the lid off, what's going to come out? Answer? Whatever's inside. Every test, every circumstance that you don't enjoy, every trial is really a test of your heart, no matter what it is, no matter what it is. I want to show you this from Scripture, so keep your finger in 1 Corinthians 10 and switch over with me to James chapter 1. And we looked at this a little bit earlier, at least we read it a little earlier, portions of it, and there's a couple of key places here. If you really want to study temptation, sin, the believer's response, how we should view it, 
James chapter 1 is really the seminal um, passage. In fact, if you want to know how it plays out in relationships, then turn to James chapter 4. James really is the primary text for understanding this, and we're only going to spend a few minutes in it. But this is how James understands, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the term trial. What does it mean to be under trial? He writes this, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect result, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Now, look at those first words again. Consider it all joy. What's he saying? Don't miss out on the benefit of your trial. Don't miss the benefit here. Somebody cuts you off, there's benefit here. Your wife just said something or neglected to do something, or your husband, there's benefit here. Don't miss it. This is for your joy. Or someone in your life dies, or has a terrible car wreck, Consider it joy. Understand that this is for your joy. You're good. How in the world can it be for our good? Well, let's unpack this a little bit. The word trial here is the same root word translated temptation in 1 Corinthians 10, 13. Now skim on down to verse 12 because James picks up and he writes these words. Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial. For once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who, what's the next two words? Love him. Now there's a little hint to where we're going, because the issue is always one of what do we love most? Now what should we love most? Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind, and with all of your strength. That's what we should love most. And that should be the ruling impulse of our hearts. And we should be governed by a love of God. So that we ask ourselves in every situation, what does my love for God demand of me in this moment? That's what should rule our hearts. The trouble is we love so many other things. And so many other things more than we love God. The idea here is that believers are called to persevere under trials. And the implication of that is that we don't give in too quickly. Do you know why it's a stunning thing to read in Hebrews, um, Hebrews chapter 4, that Jesus committed no sin. He was tempted in every way, and, and the word is tested. We'll get to that in a minute. But he's tested in every way that we are yet without sin. You know why? That's, that's, a, that's an incredible text. He suffered more than all of us. Because unlike us, he never gave in to the test. He never gave in to any temptation. He endured it to the end. You know what we tend to do? Temptation comes, give in. It's over. And we completely miss the point. We just give in. The trial's over. We failed. We move on. The Lord brings something else into our lives. Another trial. We fail. Are we learning anything? Are we growing? Are we learning to trust God? Are we doing a better job at showing the world what God is like? We're all 
called to not give in to the impulse to sin when undesirable circumstances come. We're to respond to every trial in a righteous and holy manner that communicates love for the person and love for God. We're to walk through trials without sinning against God or the people who are closest to us, maybe even the people who just sinned against us. Here's the important lesson that we need to learn here. And I want you to write this down if you're taking notes. If you're not taking notes, start taking notes. (laughs) Here's what we need to remember. The fact that I am facing a trial does not give me the license to sin. The fact that I am facing a trial does not give me a license to sin. The fact that you have a headache does not mean you've been given a license to be grumpy, selfish, and demanding, no matter why that headache is there. It may be something you ate. It may be a brain tumor. Nobody gets a pass. The fact that your wife is unhappy with you does not give you a license to become sinfully defensive and angry. The fact that a woman is dressed inappropriately does not give you a license to look at her with lust in your heart. The fact that your husband doesn't treat you like a queen does not give you the license to slander him to your girlfriends. And we can go on and on. You know, when I interview counselees after they've graduated from our counseling ministry, and, and that's just the term we use when, when they're finished, they're ready to get back to life, they've learned what they needed to learn, their life has changed in the appropriate ways. I always ask, as I did uh, this morning even after, uh, maybe it was before the first service, no, it was after the first service, and I asked one of these couples, happened to be talking with them, and I said, hey, how's it, how's it going? You know, you guys have been out of counseling for months. And they said, oh, man, it's great. It's so different. And I was talking to the husband, and I said, uh, I said, is it really different? Is it really better? And he said, oh, yeah, it's so much better. I said, would your wife say that? And he said, yes. I said, can I ask her? <laughs> and he said, she's right there. Come here, honey. And she came in, and uh, he said, tell Pastor Dan how our marriage has been since counseling. And she went, oh, so much better. So much better. And I said, why? And she said, well, you know, the whole transactional forgiveness thing, that was great. But what really turned it around was the realization that when we're having problems with one another, my issue is not his sin. My issue is my sin. And when we both became aware of the reality that what God is concerned about is our own hearts and whether or not we individually are responding to our circumstances in a holy manner or in a sinful manner, it made all the difference in the world. Because I can never change him. He can never change me. I can't even change myself. The only thing I can do is go back to the cross. The only thing I can do is is ask God for forgiveness and grace Enabling grace so that the next time we get into this circumstance, we don't sin with our mouths and with our attitudes. So in James chapter 1, we we learn the fact that whenever we're facing a trial, we never get a license to sin. The headache, the unhappy wife, the inappropriately dressed woman, the selfish husband, 
These are all circumstantial trials. They simply serve to test our hearts. And so when faced with a trial, the only thing that will come out of my heart in the midst of that trial, listen, the only thing that's going to come out of my heart and out of my mouth is what's already there. What's already there. Now let's get real practical. Think about this. No one can make me angry. You heard that term before? He makes me so mad. No, he doesn't. No, he doesn't. He may sin against you, but he doesn't make you mad. Anger, sinful anger, is already in your heart. You know what your husband did? God used your husband to take your little heart and go, and what came out? Sinful anger. It was already there. No one, no matter how inappropriately dressed they are, can make you lust. Women, you need to hear this. Wives, you need to hear this. If your husband is having a trouble with that, and on a continuum, every man does, but hear me, that is not your fault. What is happening in him is the seeds of lust are being stirred up by external forces. But the real issue is what has been inside all along. And that's where the battle needs to be held. You can go through each one of these, no matter what the issue is. Did you realize that there is nothing that can make you discontent? Nothing, ladies, can make you discontent. I become discontent because the seeds of covetous greed are already in my heart. It's just circumstances from time to time stir that up and make it visible. All the trial can do is shake my heart so that whatever is inside comes out. Now here's what has to happen. When my heart gets shaken up, first person I need to look at is me. Not the other person. Not the guy who just took my parking place. Not the person who just wrote me the nasty email. Not that it ever happens. <laughs> no, really, it's very, very rare. Thank you. Um, none of that. It's not the misunderstanding. It's not the disobedience of one of my children. The cause of it is my own sinful heart. Jeremiah nailed it when he said, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can understand it? Who can know it? Why does God allow different, difficult circumstances to come into my life and into your lives? They are simply tests designed to shake and to squeeze our hearts, to test and expose what is really inside. This is why James can write in the very next verse, verse 13, let no one say when he is tested, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. Yes, in the mystery of God's providence, he ordains every trial we face for his glory and for our good. However, God never, never, never entices us to sin. Satan does. God never does. But here's the thing. Satan can, but even Satan is on the leash. He can only do what God allows him. Witness Job, the whole story of Job. How does that begin? 
I mean, theologically, this is mind-boggling. There was Job all by himself, enjoying life with his 10 children and his wife, and all his land, his property, his servants, his camels, his sheep, his whatever. And here comes Satan into the courtroom of God, into the throne room of God. And who initiates the conversation? Remember? God does. And you know what he says to Satan? Have you considered my servant Job? Job would have been going, no, no. Keep me out of this. And Satan says, yeah, but it's only because you, it's only because you bless him so much. I mean, you take away all of his blessings and he'll curse you to your face. And God says, you're on. But you can't take his life and you can't touch his body. And all the way through, God says, only this far, Satan, only this far, only this far. I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is no one like me. There is no sovereignty of Satan, beloved. There is no sovereign Satan. He is on a leash and he cannot harm you. He can only do what God allows. And so some will ask, well, at what point then does a trial become a temptation? And that's a great question. I'm glad you asked. Let's look at the next two verses. This is what he says in James. But each one is tempted when, that's our question, when? When he is carried away and enticed by his own what? Lusts. His own lust. And then when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. This is such an important thing for us. This is the gestation period of sin. Lust gets stirred up and sin is conceived. And sin, when it is born, is not a nice baby. It is a baby from you know where. Literally. And when that baby becomes mature, turns into a mature entity. The symbolism here is a person. But when that sin grows up, it is a murderer. And the person that he murders is you. That's what this is about. Lust gives birth to sin. Sin is born and grows. Sin murders you. And so the person who's destroyed by our own inclinations towards sin is us. The word lust here is significant, and we've gone over this many times, but it bears repeating. Lust here is epithumia. It simply means strong desire. You remember we talked about the other places this word is used in 1 Timothy 3, when Paul says, if a man aspires to the office of elder, he desires a good thing. The word desire there is epithumia. And Jesus, when he comes to um, enact the Lord's Supper for the first time. He comes into the Passover meal and he stands before his apostles and he says, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you. The word earnestly desires, one word in the Greek, epithumia. I have a strong desire. That's helpful here in our interpretation of this text because what James is saying, what he's talking about is Lust. And what is lust? Lust is a strong desire. 
It's the same word, no matter how it's used. You have to interpret it according to its context, because context is king. That's right. And so, when we become angry or frustrated, unbiblical term, frustrated, biblical term, angry, when I become angry, sinfully angry at someone, I have a strong desire to have my own way. When you choose to gossip, when we choose to gossip, we have a strong desire for people to think that we are part of the privileged class of those who are in the know. Its root is love of self. If we overspend, we do it because we have a strong desire, a lust to enjoy the pleasure of having new things. These are strong desires, strong desires that gravitate toward our favorite idols, our functional gods, whom we worship, to whom we sacrifice, and who we allow to rule us rather than God. It's all about our strong desires. In fact, they are stronger than our desire for righteousness, holiness, and love. They're stronger than our love for God. And so do you know why you keep going back to that same old sin? It's because you love it so. You love it. And you love it more than God. And so you see a trial. A trial is orchestrated and allowed by God to test the ruling desires and impulses of our hearts. We are tempted when a holy desire begins crying out from within to be fulfilled. An unholy desire, when it starts crying out to be fulfilled. And I said holy desire because it's possible to desire something that is biblical and good and long for it too much so that it becomes an idol. It might be, I only wish my husband would love me, or I wish my wife would respect me. Those are biblical concepts, but if you want them too badly, if you're willing to sin to get them, or sin if you can't have them, then they become your idol, even though they are inherently good. So whether it's a holy desire or an unholy desire, it becomes sin whenever we let them run free. Trials are orchestrated to reveal that to us. And by the way, this is helpful when we think about the temptation of Jesus. The gospel says that Jesus was led out into the wilderness. Do you remember who led Jesus out into the wilderness to be tempted? Was it Satan? No, it was who? It was the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit led Jesus out to be not tempted, but tested. And this was God's intent. Jesus, let's go out to the wilderness and shake you up. Because I want the world to see that the only thing that comes out of you is righteousness and holiness and grace and love and truth. Even if Satan himself comes and tempts you, the only thing that ever comes out of your heart is holiness and righteousness and goodness and grace and truth. And that's the way it should be with us. And to the degree that we fail to produce righteousness and holiness and goodness and grace and truth when our lives are shaken up to that degree we sin. And you know what that should do when we find ourselves there? Maybe, preferably before we even get there, before we ever sin, 
you start feeling that unholy anger welling up in your heart and you haven't let your mouth fly yet, you know what God calls us to do? Fly to the cross. Fly to the cross. Oh, the wonderful cross, the wondrous cross that bids me come and die and find that I can truly live. That's what the gospel is. For the lost, it is come and die to all of your sinful passions and desires and let me be your joy. All of your sin forgiven and all of my righteousness is yours. You know what it is for the believer? The cross is a call to come and die. Let me take your sin and give you all of my righteousness and enable you to live in the joy of pleasing your God. The gospel is the same thing for both unbeliever and believer. For those who will trust in Christ and need to trust in Christ and those who already have. It's come to the cross and confess your absolute dependence upon God. God, I'm just, I'm just really hurt and I'm really mad because somebody said this to me. God, I don't want to sin. Take me to the cross. Remind me that Jesus died for the very thing that I'm about to do. Help me not sin with my mouth. God, enable me. Show me how sinful I am. Show me that the real problem here is my heart. Show me that what's really going on here is you are shaking my heart. God, I don't want sin to come all out all over that person and all over me. Help me to show them what God is like. That's how we should live. That's why God orchestrates our trials. This is an important truth for us because we so often feel like temptation is a, a kind of sovereign power that comes over us from outside of ourselves against, against which resistance seems futile. And we feel trapped in our sin. It has become what the world calls an addiction. But it's not. Sin is not something in our environment. Sin is not something in the person sitting next to you or across the dinner table or in the cubicle just across the way. It's not in the IRS office or in the chair of the presidency. That's not where sin resides, at least not the sin that you need to be concerned about. Primarily, the only sin that you need to be concerned about is the one in your heart that you're not dealing with. That's what Paul is saying to the Corinthians. He's saying, be careful. We're talking about Christian liberty, chapter 8, 9, and 10. You want to you pursue your liberties? You want to press them to the extreme? That's fine. Just understand what the price is. The price is you're not going to be living in the joy of God. The price is you're always going to be in conflict with other people because you're putting your own selfish desires first. What is really in your heart is a devotion to self rather than devotion to God. And that's why conflict and fighting exists among you. That's what he's saying. But you see, sin is not in your environment. 
It's something in our hearts. Temptation occurs within us, in our hearts. Therefore, I can never blame my sin on my circumstance. I can never blame my sin on my wife or my children or my coworkers or my friends. I can never say, Lord, the woman you have given me wasn't her fault. It wasn't Eve's fault that Adam ate the apple. Did, was she used as a catalyst to tempt him? Yes. But it was entirely his sin and his alone. I can never blame my sin on my wife or my headache or the girl who is dressed inappropriately or the husband who is less than attentive to my knees. Jesus really nailed this when he said in Luke 6, 45, the good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth what is good, and the evil man out of the evil treasure brings forth what is evil, for his mouth speaks from that which fills his heart. You see this? Whatever is coming out of his mouth is coming from his heart. The only reason you're hearing it is because God's shaking his heart right now. Pray, pray that he will see his sin and fly to the cross. And so the next time you face a trial, remember every trial is a test of the heart. Temptation is always an issue of the heart, always relative to our desires. The problem is not something outside of me, but inside of me. Therefore, the battle I must wage is not a battle against other people, but against the desires of my own heart. Okay, so we could stop there. But I have five more points. Okay. Every trial is a test of the heart, number two, and these will be shorter. No trial is particularly unusual. Every trial is a test of the heart, but no trial is particularly unusual. Now, let's go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. And here's what he says, verse 13. No temptation has overtaken you. That is, no test has overtaken you, but what is common... To man, what is common to man? The ESV, I think, renders this a little better. No temptation has taken you, the NAS says, but such as is common to man. The ESV renders this. No temptation has overtaken you. That is not common to man. I, I, I just think that that communicates more clearly, even though I'm an NAS guy myself. Every temptation we face, every circumstance, every trial is common to man. Here's the point. Everybody thinks that their trial is unique. Everybody thinks when you're in the midst of trial, I get a pass because either the intensity is so bad makes it unique or nobody's ever suffered like this before and that's what makes it unique. But it's the unique nature of my sin that gives me a pass to sin in response. And Paul is attacking that head on. No one has ever experienced this level of suffering that I'm experiencing. By the way, the root of that is pride. There's two kinds of pride, two, two stems that come out of the root of pride. One is arrogance that says nobody appreciates how great I am or how much I've accomplished. The other side of pride is the self-pitying kind that says nobody appreciates how much I suffer. If you're constantly talking about how bad life is, then you're a proud person because the only thing you care about is you. Even though the coin may be flipped to the other side, you're still consumed with you, and that's pride. And we all see it 
in ourselves, I trust. Everybody thinks their trial is unique. Everyone thinks in a moment, no one's ever experienced this level of suffering, therefore I have a pass. But thinking this way, by thinking this way, we justify ourselves with a license to sin. And Paul dashes that kind of thinking. No one has ever had an experience of a trial that is unique. 21st century Christians face the same test as 1st century Christians. Paul told these 1st century Christians that their tests that they were facing were the same kind of tests that Israel, who came out of Egypt a thousand years before them, had to face. And before Israel came out of Egypt, Adam and Eve and everybody after them experienced the same kind of circumstances, same trials, same basic temptations. And so the reality is there are they're really just a limited number of basic root sins that human beings can encounter. There's not an endless number of sins, and boy, that makes pastoral ministry so much easier because we don't have to discover new ones. I mean, there really are just a few root sins, and it's not in the hundreds. I mean, it's, it's a pretty small number, and I dare not even take a guess at how small, but my experience been, you know, if you just listen to people and use your knowledge of the word uh, or do that on yourself, you can pretty much tag it. You can pretty much get a biblical handle on it. You see, the reality is none of us have experienced anything new. Uh, I love what Jay Adams writes. He says, the secondary, superficial, or surface features are always unique to the time and place and persons involved. But when these are stripped off and the inner core of the problem is exposed, it will be found at base that there is nothing new under the sun. Common to man. They are common to man. Common to man, this three words, is actually one word. Anthropinos, from which we, you know, anthropos, man. It means human, common to man. You're your temptation or your trials are human in nature. They're common. Or that which is according to human strength and bearable. The trials are not unprecedented. They are only human temptations that have come upon you, such as men have encountered throughout all the generations of human history. There's nothing new here. It's nothing new. Your trial may be severe, but it's nothing new. No one can make an excuse for their sin based on the idea that their problem is unique. It's not unique. People face it every day. Some people will face the same kind of temptation, and they will respond in a manner that's pleasing to the Lord. Other people will face that same temptation and sin, and maybe sin repeatedly. I've met many wives who have said, yeah, but you don't understand my husband. I mean, it's bad. I mean, he's really bad. And you know what? It may turn out to be that he is bad. Maybe he's unfaithful, he's lazy, he's unaffectionate, he won't lead, he doesn't love me. That may all be true, but that does not give you a license to sin. It doesn't give you a license to sin. And let me demonstrate this to you from the Old Testament. You remember when God brought his people out of Egypt and they started walking through the desert and they ran out of water? They became really, really thirsty. And so the people grumbled and complained and even revolted against God, started making plans to go back to Egypt. Now, um, let's, let's think about this. 
Did Almighty Sovereign God know that these people were thirsty? Yes, he knew. In fact, he designed this trial for them. So, of course, he knew. He wanted to test them so that they would learn that he is faithful to meet every need. All they must do is ask, and he is ready to give. But they failed the test. They falsely concluded that being really, really thirsty gave them the license to sin, and so they grumbled against the Lord and made plans to revolt. And do you you know how God responded? He didn't say, oh, you poor people, I'm so sorry. I mean, I, I didn't realize you were so thirsty. I mean, you're so insensitive of me. Would you, would you forgive me? And, and let me go get you some water, okay? We okay? You and me? We all right? That's not what he did. You know what he did? He told Moses, leave me. Your people are at the bottom of this mountain already worshiping an idol. I don't care if they're thirsty. You go down. And he went down. He smashed the Ten Commandments. They hadn't even seen them yet. He smashed them. And and God took the lives of 3,000 people that day. What's the point? It doesn't matter how thirsty you are, how bad your headache, how bad your husband, how bad your wife. You don't get a license to sin. You say, that sounds harsh that God would do that. Understand, he is God. He is the holy. We have to stand before the holy every single day of our lives. We live in the environment of the holy one. We have to reckon with he who is infinitely holy. He's not your buddy. He's not your neighbor. He's not your child. He's not your spouse. He's not your girlfriend. He is the holy. And we must reckon with him. Beloved, I said it last week. I'll say it again. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. This really comes down to the practical issues between you and your wife, you and your husband, you and your kids, you and your coworkers. Until you recognize that the issues of your heart are really not between you and the other person, but between you and God, you're never going to make any progress. Because what's happening in your life in terms of your temptation to sin is not something in your environment. It's not external. It's coming from your heart. Being thirsty, you know what being thirsty does? It shakes your heart in order to expose what's in it. And then when we see what's in it, you know why God does that to us? I already said it, but it bears repeating. He does it. He did it to Israel. So they would fly to God and say, God, you're Jehovah Jireh. You're the great provider. You brought us out of Egypt. Surely you can give us water. Would you please? We believe you. We trust you. Help us. And for believers, you know what God wants us to do in these New Testament times? Whenever we face a trial, rather than going to our favorite idol, rather than sinning against one another, we're to look to ourselves and realize our own helplessness and fly to the cross 
Say, God, I am so tempted to sin right now. But I know that's why you sent Christ. And you promised that you would give me everything I need. Please help me. Help me worship you and you only, and not my favorite idol, not getting my way, not having comfort, not whatever it is. Help me rather to love you with all of my heart, soul, mind, and strength so that I can love my wife, my neighbor, my children as myself. And you know what? God is glorified in that. That's worship. That kind of dependency upon God is worship. But we don't typically go there first thing. We get on the phone and call a friend. Or we make some decision that's going to get us into more trouble. Or you know what we do? We go ahead and sin. We mouth off against the person who sinned against us. And now we've complicated the problem. The original problem, they sinned against me. And now I sin in return. And now one problem has become two problems. And then it just begins multiplying exponentially. If we were to stop ourselves and say, God, thank you, you're shaking my heart right now. I hate it, I don't like it, but I see it. Help me to see, help me to see my own heart clearly. And help me to realize that you are doing this in me for a purpose And so we need to remind ourselves when faced with a trial that every trial is a test of the heart and no trial is particularly unique. And number three, every trial is sovereignly measured. Every trial is sovereignly measured. No temptation has overtaken you but what is common to man. And God is faithful. God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. Three words, God is faithful. Beloved, There are no sweeter words in the Bible. No matter what your trial, no matter how small, how great, God is faithful. The word faithful here, pistos, it means trustworthy. The promise that God will not allow a Christian to be tempted beyond their capacity is as certain as God's nature God promises, I will not allow you to be tempted beyond your capacity. What you're facing right now is divinely measured. You have not been given too much. God never says, oops. You have been given the exact amount of suffering and trial. It's never too much. It is always just perfect. Why? Because God is Faithful, and he is infinite in all of his perfections. His faithfulness is an infinite perfection. He cannot be otherwise. God not only ordains the trial specifically according to our need, but he even restrains the degree to which Satan is permitted to tempt us. And Paul is saying that for the natural trial, listen to this, For the natural trial, a supernatural providence guarantees sufficient aid. For the natural trial, supernatural providence guaranteed sufficient aid. God is faithful. Whatever it is you need to be faithful to God in the midst of your trial, he's promised to provide. And so in every circumstance that comes to us, we can know for certain that it is designed for God's glory and for our own joy. William Cooper in one of his poems said it best, said a phrase that I often go back to, and it's this. 
Behind the frowning providence, there hides a smiling face. Has God providentially allowed this or orchestrated it in your life? Yes, have no doubt. Is it a dark cloud? It is. But behind that cloud is the Son of God's glory. And He loves you, and He has only given you what you can handle. And that means, number four, every trial can be met with faithfully. It can be met by faithfulness on our part. So Paul says, no temptation has overtaken you, but such is common to man. And God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. Now, wasn't that saying the same thing? Yeah, sort of, but I wanted to point out one thing. The word able here at the end, beyond what you are able. It's interesting. What I mean... I guess you wouldn't think of a Greek word here, but if I were to to look at this, I I wouldn't think of the word that's behind this word. The Greek word here behind able is dunamis. It means power. He says, God will never give you anything that you do not have the power, the resources, the ability to handle. What do we have? We have the Word of God, 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. All Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. We have the Word of God to instruct us. Secondly, we have the Holy Spirit to empower us by His Word in your heart to give you the holy desires and sufficient strength to resist the temptation. The Holy Spirit is there to give you holy affections so that you will desire God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength rather than your favorite idol. Thirdly, and this is just a sample list, you have prayer by which we are called to access the throne of grace to find help in our time of need. We have prayer. Prayer is not Kind of an intercom to tell the butler we need more goodies. Prayer is for war. Prayer is, God, I need reinforcements here. I need help. I need supply. I need strength. I need wisdom. God, help me. And then, finally, you have the church where there are people committed to helping you bring God's word to bear upon your life and your problems to encourage you to do what is right. But here's the problem. When we're faced with a trial, God has provided all these means of grace to help us, and we leave them in the tool shed. We we just don't even crack them open. We don't get them out. We don't pray. When we pray, we pray with wrong motives. Um, We don't seek help from beloved believers in the church who know the word of God and can bring it to bear on my life. Um, we don't go to the scripture to evaluate what's going on in our own hearts so that we don't sin. We don't use the means of grace. And so we fail. So where are we so far? Here we are. One, two, three, four. One, two, three, um, four. Hmm. Trial is a test of the heart, number one. Number two, no trial is particularly unique. Number three, every trial is sovereignly measured. Number four, every trial can be met with faithfulness. There are two more. Let me summarize. Every trial is only temporary. You've got to remember that. Every trial is only temporary. 
God's not asking us to endure this for too long a period. You say, you don't understand my trial. I've been bearing this burden for years. Been bearing it for years. Okay, and I don't want to be cavalier about this. We're all going to have to bear our burdens. I don't think he's talking about carrying your cross. That's a different issue. But we are going to have to bear difficulty in our lives. And some of them are going to be lifelong difficulties. I understand that. But notice what Paul says. No temptation has overtaken you but what is common to man. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. But with the temptation will provide a way of escape also. So this is temporary. But notice the next phrase so that you will be able to endure it. I want you to think about the miners who were in Chile, who were in a collapsed hole, and how far deep underground, long way, and they've been trapped down there. Imagine yourself there, and you're walking through a tunnel, and you've got this burden you're carrying, and you've walked, and you've walked, and you've walked, and you've walked, and you're carrying this burden on your back, and you're thinking, I can't do it anymore. I just can't do this anymore. And then somebody comes to you, and they say, hey, look up ahead. Look down the tunnel. Do you see light? There's a door, and it's open. You won't have to carry it much longer. You only have to endure a little, a little bit more. Keep walking. Keep being faithful. Put one foot in front of the other and pray, God, give me the resources I need to take my next step. I'm not going to commit suicide. I'm not going to end this marriage. I'm not going to say the things I'm thinking to my wife. I'm not going to fire this coworker or complain to my boss. I'm not going to cheat on my taxes. I'm not going to click on that internet site. God, I don't know how long I can do this, but I'm going to do it one more step. And here's why. Because I believe that you were faithful and you provided a way of escape. I can't escape right now. But I see at the end of the tunnel, the door's wide open. I just got to make it to the end. God, help me endure this trial. That's what he's talking about. We all want the escape. We all want to punch the button and flip out of the canopy. It doesn't work that way. You know how we do that? We sin and then ask for forgiveness. And then we think, that's done rather than enduring what God has given us to carry in order to show that God is God, that God is gloriously faithful, that Christ is precious, that Christ and his cross are beautiful and sufficient. His word is true. Not a single promise has ever failed. That's God's purpose in trial to strengthen our faith, our trust, our enjoyment of him. The Puritans were right. The purpose for our existence is to love God, to glorify God, and to enjoy him forever. And the reason that we don't 
is because we so frequently give ourselves a license to sin and then exercise our self-imposed right. We sin against God, we break fellowship with one another, and then we wonder why the Christian life isn't as good as we think it should be. That's why. But there's a wonderful promise to us all, and this is it. You want to hear the great promise? No temptation. No temptation has overtaken you but what is common to man. And God is faithful, and he will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide a way of escape also so that you will be able to endure it. Therefore, verse 14, and this is the end, Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. And that's the last point. Every trial is a call to worship. Flee your idol. Cling to the cross. Flee your idol. Fly to the cross. Give up your false worship. Embrace the cross. Worship Christ in spirit and in truth. And be filled with the joy of walking in the pleasure of your God. That's the way we're supposed to live, beloved. That's what gives our lives substance or explains the reasons why we as believers are so hollow. It's all about sin. And the issues of sin are always heart issues. They're always trust issues. They're always worship issues. They're always love issues. They're always issues relative to me. And so, beloved, here's the main point. What we need to remember when being tempted by various trials, simply this, there is no temptation so great that our God is not greater still. Amen? Father, we praise you for this precious promise, one of many in your word. It helps us to understand how you want us to address the difficult circumstances and temptations in our lives. We need that help. Oh, Father, I need this help. And so I pray, Father, that you would drive these truths home into our hearts and enable us by your grace to live this way or to repent of our failure to live this way. Oh, Lord, last week I know your spirit moved in our midst and, and we have good reason to hope that several have repented perhaps some unto salvation. I pray, Father, that you would continue that work this morning, that we would evaluate our own hearts and not be thinking about the person next to us or the one to whom we go home, but rather determine whether or not our